Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, from the there was there in, in the account, if you look prior, was just this healing that Jesus healed this paralytic man. Um, as he went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. In a very short statement, Jesus says, follow me, he told him. And Matthew, we're told he got up and followed him. And then in verse 10, a little bit later on, seemingly the same day, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his, Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, we're told Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And then he quotes from one of their old prophets, Hosea chapter 6. I desire mercy. This is a quote from God through a prophet. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come, Jesus goes on, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Then we read, then John's disciples, this is John the Baptist. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that the Pharisees... Uh, I'm sorry, that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear even worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Both are preserved. What I want to look at tonight is I want us to kind of look at two different different directions. I want us to look at ourselves in sort of a self-critical way, exploring this idea of what's my relationship to Jesus? And I'll I'll explain. Don't don't answer that too quickly. (laughs) Um, And then number two, how how do I interact with other people who I'm kind of, you know, I'm always assessing, like, what's your relationship with Jesus? Where are you at? Um, And I think this has direct implication for really how we do what we do here, not just Wednesday nights, Sundays, but all throughout the week as we sit down and have coffee with friends and engage in relationships. But it has enormous implications just for life and for myself, my identity, and my relationship with other people. Uh, Before I start talking about that, I want you to look at this cool guy in his tweed jacket here. Um, This is a a scholar. uh, His his name is Paul Hebert. Uh, Paul Hebert was born in like 1932. He died in 2007, so he died a while. This this is him as a little boy. he, He was born in India. Uh, to missionary parents. He had six sisters. You've only got five shown here. Can you imagine it? Six sisters and the only boy in the, in the family. Uh, but in the, so in the 1930s and 1940s, he's growing up in, in uh, northern India with his parents are missionaries. And they're a part of this kind of missionary community that, that lives there as they're engaging in, in their activities and that sort of thing. And um, 
he in, in 47 when when Hitler's forces were moving he actually had they had to leave they had to come back to the US and then he kind of went back there but he came back here for school and he was kind of a, he was like a math and physics geek that was kind of his undergraduate study but but then he he moved into like anthropology and so he became this cultural anthropologist this is kind of brilliant brilliant guy and he taught in universities around and that sort of thing and when when he came back to the states he 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 began to reflect upon the kind of community he was a part of. He, he just thought a lot about it. What was it like? How did it, how did it engage in community? And he became kind of self-critical. Uh, not of Jesus. He, he, he loved Jesus deeply, had a very uh, passionate, passionate Christian faith. But he, he kind of was self-critical about the community he was a part of. Because what he, what he thought and said is, there, there were lots of people, local indigenous people, uh, Indians, who really kind of liked this Jesus guy. Kind of like, I'm intrigued. I'm, I want to know more. Like Jesus. But the thought of becoming a Christian was revolting because they wouldn't be just embracing Jesus, he kind of reflected, is that they, they kind of had to embrace a lot of um, different customs, different, maybe it affected what they could wear or the, the vocabulary that they would speak, or were, were they going to celebrate this holiday or that holiday. There were kind of uh, songs that there was sort of Westernism that was like really closely tied with this Jesus. So it was a Western expression of following Jesus, of Christianity. And so as he, as he reflected on all of this, um, he said, okay, our goal is to take this gospel, which is eternally relevant, right? And, it, and we're to contextualize it for wherever, whatever culture we're going into. We are to contextualize the gospel. And he said, what kind of community would best contextualize the gospel wherever we go? And no, I told you he was, a, he was like a math guy, okay? So I'm going um, to give me math. I'm going to talk about math for a second. And I know, like, I barely eked through Algebra 1. I mean, it was rough. I barely got through. It was horrible. My, my kids, when they have math, like my second daughter, Burrell, she's in sixth grade. She has math. She comes home, and I'm just like, I can't help you. I don't know at all what you're doing. I literally call my dad because he was a teacher, and I'm like, would you please help? So I, I know, like, I hate math. I know nothing about it. I, I see an equation, and I break out in a sweat. It just stresses me out. So, But I don't, I don't fully get... Um, this uh, Paul Hebert's ideas of math, but I get how he applies them. I get how he applies them. And he said, when in math, there's something called set theory. Some of you probably know what this is about. I have no idea what it's about. But there's something called set theory. And he said there's two different kinds or two different, as he thought about his community, he said the first one that, that you might think about is what's called, I'm going to write up here, a, a bounded so anyone heard, heard of this before? You're more intelligent than I am if you have. I, I, I've never heard of this. Anyway, so there's, <clears throat> there, there are these bounded sets, and then there's what's called a centered set. How many of you are now wishing, I wish I didn't come to Wednesday night community doing math. This is absurd. Um, <clears throat> and... What, what this is all about is this idea that um, how you identify things, numbers or equations or whatever it might be, um, 
you you need to know whether or not they are in a set. Okay, different different things if they're if they're related to each other. Um, and so, uh, a, for instance, let me talk about the bounded set. So a a group of somethings, numbers, or we'll just talk about people because that's a little more. I can wrap my mind around a little bit, okay? A group of somethings in a bounded set um, are a part of it if they have a certain number of common characteristics, if they have attributes, okay? Think about like a concrete thing. You're going to have a family reunion, okay? Who's going to get invited to the family reunion? Yeah, family, right? Okay, that's an easy one. Okay, what, what are the attributes to determine if you're, if you're invited or not? Well, you know, bloodline, okay, like heritage. Uh, it could be illegal. You could have been adopted into the family. You could have married into the family. So, so there are certain characteristics or, or attributes that if you have, then you can be a part of this, okay? Now, you might have really cool neighbors and you love your neighbors. They're not getting invited to the family reunion, right? They're very clearly on the outside of this bounded set. Does that make sense? Okay. So now the, the attributes or the qualifications in this are static. They don't change. They're not moving. It's a, it's a set list of qualities or attributes that determine whether or not you're, you're in this, this bounded set. Um, and Hebert realized that this was a really good description of, of the Christian community that, that he was a part of when he lived in this missionary group uh, community in India, which is to say, in, in their culture, what, what made this up right here, the boundaries, it was a certain experience um, it, it was now someone might have been born into the family that that might have been it. Um, but but typically they had some sort of a personal experience with God early on. They they went through some sort of kind of a confirmation experience. Um, and then there were certain behaviors that that naturally followed as a result of being a part of this community. And th- these become really, really clear, identifiable categories that that you have um here's the problem though he said he said this line here you look throughout church history and it rarely stays like this because what we do is we start to take cultural things things that are usually part of our culture and we kind of make this line a little bit thicker we kind of add layers to 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 this sort of thing um I mean, I'll give you an example from mine. I remember when I, you know, growing up, and I, I didn't think I was always told this. I just, I just knew it somehow. But, um, you know, pe- people who are here um, don't, you know, they wouldn't enjoy a glass of wine or sip a, a, a glass of whiskey or something like that. They wouldn't drink a beer. Alcohol was one of these kind of boundary, boundary markers. I remember when I was in high school going over to, we had a... Uh, I had another pair of friends who were in our youth group together, and their parents were sponsors, like youth sponsors. And they were like the salt-of-the-earth people, like just great, great people, wonderful youth sponsors. And I remember going to their house one time. John Atkinson was his name, and I remember going to his refrigerator, opening it up, and I was like, <gasps> and there was beer in the back of the refrigerator. And I was just horrified. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I thought John was here. John's like 
over here now. Like, you know, it's a charade, this whole life this guy is living. I found out later there were like oduls. I mean, there's like not even any alcohol in it. I thought, well, okay, it's still some sort of a carryover from his pre-Christian life. But see, there are other cultures to where something like that would not be a boundary marker in this kind of bounded set. Does that make sense? And we probably all have those things from our past. You would say, no, this is a boundary marker. This, this is a distinctive. And, and see, what happens is that these attributes, whatever it is, become just as significant defining characteristics as any other line. They become absolutely essential. And um, Hebert believed that this way of thinking, when I asked this question, who am I? Remember I said I want you to think about like, what, what is your relationship to Jesus? When I ask this question, or when you ask this question, when these people in the text ask this question, the, how will you answer it? Who am I? Well, I'm someone who does this or doesn't do that. And here's, here's the challenge. Here's, here's the hard part. And I think the thing that Jesus continually put his finger on is that kind of bounded set understanding of what Jesus' community is, is that... Um, it it basically um, makes it real clear who's in and out. But I can also be very self-deluded, can't I? Because I can think I'm a part of this community because I've got the list of attributes. I do these things. I engage in those things. But in reality, my heart could be very, very far from Jesus. Do you remember how many times did Jesus say things to people like, you do this and you do that, but your hearts are Far from God. Or the prophets in the Old Testament would say that to people. You sacrifice and you do this and you do that, but your hearts are far from God. What he's saying is you have this bounded set theory about what it means to be the people of God. And you can really easily get absolutely deluded. So um, now there's, a, there's, there's another way of thinking about it. Hebert said, this is from Math 2. And Hebrews said, okay, there's, a, there's another possible way to think about what it means to people of God. And he said, in, in this sort of theory, things don't have their identity primarily from a list of attributes that kind of mark you in or out. Instead, this, this centered set theory, um, what it does is it has a, I'm going to put, since we're talking about Christian community, J.C. Jesus. It has a very clearly defined center. Okay, very, very clearly defined center. And in a center set, how do you know who you are? How do you determine who you are? It's it's not a static set of, you know, these attributes and that sort of thing. Um, Here's the question. The question is, am I moving toward the center or am I moving Away from the center. Those are the two questions you ask to determine your identity in this view of Jesus' community. Am I moving toward the center, which is Jesus, or am I moving away from from the center? Um, Let me ask you a question to kind of give a a common example. How many of you play an instrument? Anyone here play an instrument? Okay. How many of you would take the identity of a musician? Okay. Much smaller group of people. Okay. Why is that? Well, what determines if you're a musician? Like, do you have to be in a band? 
What if you're in the band, but you know, do you have to be in a band to get paid? Because you'd be in a band, a lot of bands, you don't get paid at all. In fact, you lose money. Uh, you have to, you know, what, what determines if you take on the identity of a musician? And this sort of explanation, you'd say, well, yeah, there, there's, there's some, some, sort of, some sort of criteria. If you meet these criteria, then you can say you are a musician in this way. Um, I remember a number of years ago, I, I, I picked up a guitar. I didn't literally pick up a guitar. I mean, I, I bought a guitar, and I tried to learn guitar. And this is like 18 years ago. And, and, and I played it for a couple of years. I learned chords. And I remember uh, my wife, Chris, and I were in a small group. We lived in New Orleans at the time. And we were in a, in a small group, and it was like, okay, everyone do something. And so I, I, I led worship. And I mean, if, if you've ever stood in front of me in worship and heard, heard, heard me sing, it's just absurd that I would. But, so I'm like in the small group, you know, playing my guitar. But I, I'm like excited. I think this is, you know, I'm going to be a worship pastor or something. I'm like, this is, this is awesome. I'm, I'm horrible at it. But, but it's something that I kind of picked up and, and I started leaning into. Um, if, if you think about it like this, I picked it. Now, I was way out here as far as playing the guitar. But I was, I was pointing toward the center in terms of man, I want I want to learn guitar. I want to know guitar. I want I want to be able to to play guitar. Um, the reality is, think about people. Um, there could be someone who is. I mean, you could be a super super gifted musician, right? You could you could have wonderful gifts, and you hone those when you were in your twenties. Well, you're in your fifties now, and you haven't picked up the guitar in how long? And so you're, you're, you're moving away from the center. Or again, you could be the, you know, the me who, like, it's painful for people to listen to you playing the guitar or singing or anything. But, but you're pointed toward the center. You're, you're moving forward in that direction. Um, so now think about, think about people as, as the second model center set theory of Jesus community. Um, there are people who are born into the church, right? I mean, it's not hard for them. This is just how they've always done life. They've gone to church. They, they, they read their Bible. They do certain things. And, but it's a part of their culture. It's a part of what they do. It's life. But their hearts don't, aren't, aren't pointing into the center at all. There's, there's no real connection with Jesus, we might say. There are people who are far away and Jesus invites them, and they ah, Jesus is a joke, and, and, and they, they point away from center. And there are people who are really far away, and Jesus invites them, and they're interested. And, and, and they're really, you know, they're kind of going, ah, oh, that's, you know, that's fascinating. See, then we ask the question, who's, who's a Christian? Who's, well, this is really easy to figure out. I can, I can tell all of you who are, you know, Christian, you are, you are, you're not. <laughs> who's a Jesus? This, this, is, this is messy, isn't it? I can't judge someone's heart. I don't know where they're at. There, there are people who are really, really far from God in, in, in the externals, in the, in the attributes. And yet they're kind of like this. They're kind of moving toward God. They're interested. They're going, What's this about? I want to talk about Jesus. I've got, I've got a friend who's in that category. This, this person's lifestyle would, would, would break a good number of the Ten Commandments kind of thing. And this person really likes talking about jesus and we sit down occasionally i want to i want to talk about i want to talk about this jesus and to me i'm going they're i think they're pointing toward the center i think i think they're moving in that direction toward the center so hebert believed paul hebert believed that 
centered set, this idea, that, that a centered community, it's closer in emphasis, meaning these, these two things emphasize things. This one's closer, he thought, in emphasis to this Jesus community that, that Jesus was about and that we even see in this text right here. So, okay, let's go back to verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9, and I want to read this through this lens and kind of identify what's Jesus doing. Is, is this kind of centered set thing? Is this kind of where he's moving toward, and what are the implications of that? Chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, this is after he had healed, healed the paralytic man, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Uh, this is only... This is only the second time we've heard in this gospel of Jesus actually intentionally uh, moving towards someone and saying, follow me. Back in chapter 2, he does, he does it to these fishermen. This is the only other time that we've seen it where, where, where Jesus does it, where he's moving toward someone. Um, now, note, this Matthew that we read about in this text, this is the same Matthew who, who, whose name is attributed to and connected with the authorship the compilation of this particular book that we're reading right here. So here's the question. What's going on inside of Matthew? Um, I mean, he's, Matthew's about as far away from Jesus, we'll see here in a second, as you could possibly get. <laughs> but there's something going on inside of him. Um, what, is, what does Matthew do for a living? What does the text say? He's, he's a tax collector. Yeah, he's sitting at a tax booth, we're told. He's, he's a tax collector. Now, think about this. A Jewish man um, sitting at a tax collector's booth, that, that snapshot, if you were walking by, if you were a first century Palestinian Jew, that picture represents everything that is wrong with our world. Everything that is, that is wrong. Um, a tax collector, he, he, he represents... The presence of, of a military occupation um, of an empire who, whose capital is a long, long ways away. And there's, there's heavy military strategic occupation of what is the Jews' ancestral land. And then maybe worst of all, the Roman tax system was hideous. It was so hard. The Roman, the Roman tax system was just absolutely grinding the Jewish people into debt. Uh, notice sometime when you read Jesus' parables, how many of his parables have to do with debt, have to do with land, and, that, and so on and that sort of thing. This is the day-to-day world that they live in. Now, the reason the Roman Empire, one of the reasons, that, that, that it lasted so long is how they occupied Typically, when Rome occupied, they wouldn't just send in their own foreigners. Hey, let's send in someone with different skin color and they talk different. No, no, no. They said, let's just buy off locals, right? We'll, just, we'll get people who we can buy off and they'll be a puppet. So King Herod is, is a puppet for Rome. Uh, there are Roman soldiers occupying the area. But they also hire these Jewish uh, mercenary armies. And Matthew is one of the guys that, that they have bought off. Um, and, and people like Matthew, think about it, uh, people like Matthew in the first century, he's basically mafia. I mean, that's kind of the feel of it in terms of he's, he's working for the bad guys. Um, 
he's, uh, he's, he's taking advantage. Think about how a Jewish tax collector made money. Okay, he's sitting at Romans. We know they are really good at making roads. So he's sitting at a little booth alongside of a Roman road. And here come some fishermen, and they're passing from one province into another, but they have to stop by the booth and pay taxes to Rome. And so Matthew collects those. But then there's a service fee. You know, it's like at the ATM, you've got to pay a couple bucks or something if you don't go to your right one. But here's the thing Rome says to Matthew, you know what? You could set your own salary, which that's kind of appealing, right? You set your salary by figuring out what percentage you want to collect. So does Matthew collect 7%? Does he collect 9%? Uh, knowing the human heart, <laughs> uh, he, they, they lived pretty well. They, they would collect more than enough. So this is, in, in a sense, this is um, uh, extortion of people. Um, Rome doesn't respect a guy like Matthew. I mean, he's money talks. They bought him off. Uh, the Jews don't just not respect him. They hate him. Um, take a look. Let me show you. A, this is a coin. I don't know if you can see this, how well you can see this. This is a coin from the first century, just to give you a feeling of the nature of Matthew's interaction with community. This is the kind of coin that that was used, that was collected for taxes. Uh, This particular coin actually postdates Jesus by a few years, but it it gives you the idea. So on, on the head of this coin, it says Caesar Vespasian, imperial lord of the world. Now, look at the other end of this. This, this is really interesting. It says, the, the victory of Augustus. Augustus is just another name for the, for the emperor. Okay? Now, notice there are two characters in this picture. Okay? This right here is a soldier. Any guesses what kind of soldier? It's a Roman soldier. And guess who the Roman soldier has his boot on in the picture? It's a Jewish man. Okay? This is the kind of coin... That Matthew gives you back in change and says, have a nice day. And this is the reality that they're living in. So think of us. When, when Jesus goes to Matthew and says, follow me, this is not just a religious thing. There are socio-political, economic realities at play here. And why these things are a big deal when Jesus steps forward. He moves forward toward this tax collector named Matthew and tells him to come follow me. And so in verse 9, Jesus saw the man Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He says, follow me, he told him. And it says, Matthew got up and followed him. Now, again, we ask the question, what's going on inside Matthew? Um, Even though he's involved in a system, which, you know, again, it's about extorting his own people, there's something going on inside him, and he may be as far away from the center as possible, but he's intrigued. He's, he's taking some steps toward Jesus. Now, Matthew becomes, if, if you've read the story, he becomes one of the like intimate, center, closest followers of Jesus. Jesus has tons of followers. I mean, tons. But he picks 12, and these 12 represent this, this renewed, reconstituted people of God. And he, he calls 12 to be sort of his, his intimate circle. And, and Matthew becomes one of those. In fact, if, you, if you're in chapter 9 and you just like either flip the page or look to your right, uh, chapter 10. Chapter 10 gives the list of the 12. Take, take a look at these names. Okay, there's 12 given here. It says these are the names of the 12 apostles. It says first Simon, who's called Peter. 
his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, there are 12 names given. There are three of the names which have additional information for us, either based on their background or something they did. It's some added information here. And all three of these names are very relevant as we talk about this bounded versus centered theory of doing Jesus community. Okay, question. Let's think about these three names real fast. From from a viewer's perspective, first century Palestinian Jew, you're there. Matthew, good guy or bad guy? Yeah, bad guy, right? Uh, who's, who's there? Uh, Simon the Zealot, good guy or bad guy? Well, depends. If... Okay, zealot. A zealot is someone, we use the word like zealous or someone has zeal. A zealot is someone who agreed with the Pharisees about keeping, uh, being uh, observant of Torah and ritual, uh, cleanliness and all these things. Plus, this is the, plus uh, spilling blood of Rome if that's what it takes to gain um, our freedom back as a, as, as a community. It's, it's observant of the law, but, but plus... Um, being completely committed to Israel's liberation, political liberation and freedom. So this is someone who's very willing to spill the blood of, of Rome. Um, now, think about this. Matthew, Matthew's like the mafia guy. Simon's like Jack Bauer who's trying to kill the mafia. Okay, He's like CI, he's going after him. Like, who do you think is going to have conflict in this tight little group of Jesus' followers? Can you imagine? Like, everything Jesus does, it's intentional. It's meaningful. This is, Jesus didn't go like, oh, man, I shouldn't have brought those two guys together. I, sh- I shouldn't have those two room together. He's doing this intentionally. He's bringing together a kind of community that will have implications. Um, Jesus is redefining, I would suggest, what it means to be the people of God. He's redefining in a powerful way. Now, um, he does not have to do, um, or, or Jesus redefining it rather, um, it doesn't have to do with um, moral purity, certain accomplishments, or, or anything along those lines. All that matters is that Jesus is offering. Jesus is saying to you, the person who's there, regardless of where you're at here or where you're at here, he's just offering relationship, family, familial relationship actually. Now, what about the last one, Judas? Um, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Think about this model, okay? Uh, where, would we, where would you put Matthew? He's probably like way on the outskirts, but which way is he pointed? He's pointing toward the center, right? You've got, uh, you've got the, the zealot. I don't know where we'd put him, but he, he points toward the middle. Where, where's, uh, where's Judas? He's like, he's right here. I mean, you can't get much closer. But what direction is he pointing? Well, we find out later in the story, he was never pointing toward the center. Because we, we even read it says that he was stealing from the coffers at all the way long. No one knew. So this guy had all the appearances of being right there, very close to Jesus. He's of his inner circle. And yet, which way was he, was he pointing? Jesus is making a radical statement 
about what it means to belong to the family of God. Verse 10, we read, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Now, pause there for a second. If you like circle the word dinner in your Bible, another math thing here, uh, right equals relationship. I mean, meal, you know, even for us, if, if, if you go over to someone's house for, for dinner, I mean, it's, it's maybe a little bit more than an acquaintance, okay? In this culture, it's extreme. Uh, for, for, for a Jew to associate and have a meal with someone, it, it makes a visual, or I'm sorry, it makes a cultural statement, I accept you. I want to do life with you. I'm fine being identified with you. So we see Jesus having a meal, and who else comes? Look in the text, who else comes to it? Do you not have your Bibles with you? Okay, who else comes? Tax collectors and sinners. These are Matthew's friends. All of Matthew's friends come to it as well. And it says, and they ate with him and his disciples. Can you imagine how uncomfortable Simon the Zealot was? He's just like, oh, there's more of them. He just, this is horrible for him. No, so think about this. Matthew comes to believe that he can't be a part of the system anymore because it's, 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 it's something that is uh, destructive. But he still has all these relationships of people who are a part of that world very much. And who knows where they're at? I mean, where are they? There's some people who might be like, oh, man, I've heard about this Jesus guy. I kind of want to see you know, what he's like. Which, which direction are they pointing? I don't know. Who knows? But, but Jesus is redefining what it means to be part of the family. Because for, for, Now, from the outside, it looks like Jesus is having a dinner party, dinner party with the mafia. I mean, it's just this is unprofessional at, at best. Right? This, this is a social suicide at worst in terms of his role in the community and that sort of thing. Now, this is one thing that's interesting. Okay, the mafia know Jesus does not agree with their lifestyle. Okay? They've heard his teachings. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, they, they heard all that stuff about justice and mercy and how you behave. They know Jesus doesn't agree with their lifestyle, and yet they want to be around him. Isn't that interesting? Like, do you have anyone in your life who you would say, yeah, they know if they asked that I disagree with their lifestyle. And yet we actually have a relationship. They want to be around me. What's that about? That's something of this Jesus community. That's something about this centered community here, I think. Now, look at the Pharisees response. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. Notice they don't go to him. They asked his disciples. "Uh, Why does your teacher eat with? This kind of riffraff, tax collectors, sinners, and that sort of thing. On hearing this, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And then again, he's quoting from one of their prophets. Prophets were always calling Israel back to right relationship with God and others. And he quotes the passage from Hosea 6 where God says, I want people who are, whose hearts are shaped by mercy and love, not primarily about getting all their ducks in a row. He says, it's sacrifice. It's, I want people who, who, who care and are shaped by love and mercy, more so than sacrifice. <clears throat> For I have not come, Jesus says, to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus is saying that the people have constructed in, the, in this world, they've constructed a social environment where you can be, again, totally self-deluded. Do I have a relationship with the God of Israel? Well, sure. Look what I do. Look at the four things I do. I could be totally self-deluded. 
about that. And Jesus talks about that time and time again. Now, the Pharisees could say, no, hold on, Jesus, hold on. We're all about mercy, too. Okay? We will accept Matthew back any time. He can come back. He can, we'll accept him through here. All he has to do is choose to be observant, to, to hold to Torah, to hold to our dietary laws, to, to observe Sabbath. We're standing here with open arms. We would love for him to be a part of the community so long as he does this and he is. What, what's wrong with that? What it means is your acceptance is based on your will, your willpower, right? If you choose to do A, B, C, and D, you can be accepted into the, into the community. You can belong as long as you behave and believe in these sorts of things. Then, then you can belong. Um, Jesus is about coming to you right where you are and saying, follow me. Yeah, but I'm busy. No, 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 I know. Believe me, I know. I know even more than you think I know. Follow me. Right where the person is at. And, and it doesn't end here either. Jesus starts talking about, there's kind of some, seems a little weird and disconnected, but I think it's connected, weddings and shirts and, and wine. Uh, verse 14, it says, uh, then John's, this is John the Baptist, then John's disciples um, come. Now, they, they hear that Jesus is, you know, hanging out with the mafia, having meals with them too, and they're kind of bothered by that sort of thing. Because John's disciples, John fasts. John lives a rough life, right? He, he holds off. Uh, pleasure and walks around in you know uncomfortable clothing and you know he's a scavenger he's like a a dumpster diver the guy's eating like locusts and wild honey and he's but he's acting like a good old testament prophet they always acted in these odd ways to draw attention to them for this message that god had but but it was about fasting it was about calling people back to repentance and he had a good relationship with jesus but his disciples come and say we don't get this we don't get this thing you're, you're kind of a little too joyful. <laughs> you, know, you need to kind of mourn probably a little, a little bit more. Um, you're kind of acting like it's a party. You're a little too lax, Jesus. Um, we're about prayer, we're about religious devotion. And Jesus and his disciples, we find out in the text, that they didn't hold to the, the regular fast days. That, that the Jews of this time did. The reason that the Jews in this day would, would have these regular fast days was it was to commemorate the tragic history of their people, N- not, not least of which is you know, the destruction of the temple and, and the way that they're in exile still. They're in their land, but they don't own it, so they're still kind of in exile. And so they commemorate these days for, for this idea of repentance because of the darkness of life, of the darkness of reality. The world's so messed up. Don't be so serious. I'm sorry, you should be more serious. Deny yourself. Mourn. And Jesus doesn't deny there's a time for mourning. He says that's very appropriate at times. But he says that's not the time that we're in right now. And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 15, Jesus says, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? And then he says, There's a time. There will be a time where mourning is very, very appropriate. And, and it will be taken. Then they will fast. See, now, why does Jesus use wedding as a picture? And I, I, I think it's intentional. Um, what happens at a wedding? Two people come together. They, they covenant with each other. And out of this covenant commitment comes new life, comes, comes family. What is Jesus doing as he's always announcing that 
the gospel, uh, sorry, the kingdom of God. It's at hand. It's here. He's creating a new people. And he says it's a time, it's a time to celebrate. Because people all, like, like Matthew, who are way on the fringe, like totally would, would never be okay in this set over here. People like that are, are, are pointing toward Jesus. And they're, and they're leaning into Jesus. And so he says it's a time for celebration, for goodness sake. See, if you show up at a wedding, imagine if you showed up at a wedding, you're just like, oh, no, it's no, I won't have any food. I'm just going to go in the corner and sit and pray. And fa-. No, it'd be totally inappropriate, right? You would be so unaware of the surroundings of the circumstances. No, no, this is a time for celebration. So Jesus is saying something in what he is doing is different than all the rest of Israel's history. Because you mourn and you mourn until there's, until there's day. And he's saying day is here. And then Jesus finishes by giving two pictures. He talks about shirts and wineskins, and we don't really have time to go into all of it. But what all three of these, weddings and shirts and wineskins, have in common is Jesus insists the old will not mix with the new. Now, Jesus never says, he's very clear, that the old was never bad. It's that the old was pointing to something. We talked a number of weeks ago here about this concept of law and pointing to Jesus. Um, And Matthew insists Jesus came to fulfill, not to destroy anything. Um, N.T. Wright has got this great quote. Let me read this for you in his commentary, which he talks about this passage in Matthew. Uh, N.T. Wright says, while John the Baptist's movement and the Pharisees were kind of figuratively lighting candles to remind them of how light it used to be of the previous days before the present darkness that we're in. said he, Jesus, was throwing open the curtains in, in the light of this new day that he knew was dawning. He knew it was coming, though no one else could even see it. Night at end, Jesus is making a claim. He's saying, in my coming, my presence, me being here, all of history and life and the world is reaching its climax. It's being fulfilled. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, to be ruled by a king is what a kingdom is. It's here. It's at, literally at your hands. Do you see it? Are you aware of it? Last observation I want to make is um, biblical scholars have, have always pointed out, I mentioned this at the very beginning, that this passage written by Matthew feels oddly fit here it's like a foot that's a little too big for a shoe because you've got you've got all these stories of these healing stories and then then right in the middle you've got this it's not a healing story it's kind of like why did matthew put this here um and so people will ask why do you think he did it why do you think he put this account of his calling in the middle of all these healing stories and if you think about it for a minute the answer i think is kind of obvious Based on where Matthew was, way down here, based on where he was, on who he was, on what his life was like, for Jesus to come along and invite him into a relationship with no shame, no guilt, no cleanup first, just invited, would feel exactly like a healing miracle. And what's so cool is what Matthew mentions right away afterwards and has a direct impact for us is, you know, right away after that, he said Jesus wanted to do a meal. Wow. Because remember, meal equals acceptance. It equals relationship. 
Every week, we have a pretty common liturgy every Wednesday night. We come, we sing about Jesus, we, we talk stories, accounts about Jesus and his world, and then we take a meal that Jesus wanted, he initiated. In fact, it was his last meal that he ever did. And this too, very clearly, more clear than any other one, was all about relationship. It was a meal based on, predicated upon his own sacrifice, his death. The bread, he said, that's my body broken. This cup, that's my blood shed. The, whole, the only way the meal can even happen is because I'm sacrificing, Jesus says. And so here's the thing that I would suggest we, we see as, as we take the meal this evening. Is that if you ever, ever doubt that Jesus really, really is moving toward you, really, really wants a relationship, really, really wants you to be centered, moving toward him. If you ever kind of doubt that he really wants you just as you are, this meal, based on the sacrifice, wipes all that away. If you, you can't understand this meal and ever have that thought in your head. This meal wipes that very concept away. What I'm going to ask our, our ushers to do is to come forward to, to pass out the elements of this meal, this last meal that Jesus did about relationship, about acceptance, about his provision of those things. I want you to grab the elements, hold them for a minute, and during, during the next couple minutes, here's what I would like you to do, is just have some private time with you and God. Turn your attention in whatever way you need to do that toward God and ask His Holy Spirit to, to help you explore the two things we talked about tonight. What is my identity? Is it, is it a list of attributes and that's my relationship with God? Or is it about me moving toward the center? And number two, how am I gauging in relationships with others? Am I stepping into and inviting people to do this? Or have I created some boundaries which Jesus might not be too thrilled about in my relationship with others? Be introspective, and then we'll come back together and we'll take the elements together.